Welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. Now, kind of as we turn our attention to God's Word and just some some time uh, looking at what He has for us in the Gospel of John, I want to start by opening up in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank You for this evening. God, thank You for just a beautiful day and for the sun and even for the breeze and the birds that are singing. Lord, we know that You are the one who gives them their song. And... You are the creator of everything we get to experience outside. You're the creator of everything in this world, Lord. And so we give you all the glory tonight. My prayer is that as we turn to your word, that God, you would show us even more of your glory and that you would help us, Lord, to learn what it looks like to follow you. We're broken people. And so we need guidance. We need your help and we need encouragement. And so I pray that all of these things would be found in your word, and all of them would be found at the cross of Jesus Christ. God, would you just bless this time? Uh, would you bless uh, the preaching of your word and then even the fellowship afterwards, all for the sake of your name? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, more impactful things that happened to me during my freshman year of college is that a group of my friends and I joined a ministry called Free Prayer. And it was a ministry that operated in the bar districts of downtown Chicago. Late on Friday nights, and what you would do at this ministry is you would stand outside of the bars, usually in kind of a dark alleyway with one or two of your buddies, and you would all hold signs with the words Free Prayer written on the front of them. And you were supposed to pray for anyone who came up to you And you were supposed to do that from 11 p.m. at night until 3 or 4 in the morning. So it was a pretty big commitment. But as slightly overzealous seminary students, we decided to give it a go. And we joined one of their teams. And while I can say that our honest desire uh, when we signed up was to help the lost in our city, the truth is that we were not ready for the hostile environment that the ministry put us into. We found out very quickly that the bar district in Chicago is not a nice place to be late on a Friday night. And almost every person who stopped by us did so only to insult us, to curse us, or to even, on the rare occasion, try to shove us over and take the signs. In fact, every conversation we had was a conflict. And while we all knew that we'd run into some of that, with it being Chicago, We were not ready at all for the level of personal abuse that people took out on us. Nor were we ready for the antagonism that filled every single interaction. Even, you know, with our studies and all of our Bible knowledge. We just didn't know how to respond effectively when the people we were trying to evangelize were purposefully trying to attack us in the message we were bringing. More than anything, I think I remember just feeling helpless in the middle of all that. 
as I tried to engage with these people who were so hostile to God, I really didn't know what to do about it. And I felt stuck in between that desire to help people who were lost, but also a desire to run away and head back to the campus where it was safe. So while I started out thinking myself a lion when it came to conflict, really in my heart I was more of a turtle. (laughs) And I wanted to retreat back into my shell. And while I'm not proud of that feeling, and certainly I had to work through it, I think it reveals, I think it uncovers something that we've all experienced before. Maybe it wasn't on the streets of Chicago for you, but we all know the feeling of helplessness that comes when you try to share the gospel with someone who is hostile towards your message. Maybe it was a family member or a close friend, or a co-worker, or maybe it was just, you know, a random guy who came from off the streets. I don't know. But each of you have faced the temptation to run away from hard conversations when the other person hates or has purposely set themselves against God and His truth. Sometimes the personal abuse and the antagonism just seems like too much. And crawling back inside the shell doesn't sound so bad, does it? But friends, can I just say, in those moments, running away is not the biblical response. It really isn't. In fact, when you come to Scripture, what you find is that our God does not flee from conflict with people who are hostile to Him. If he did, I would not be standing here today. In fact, none of us would be here. Why? Because the only way you can care for the lost is by confronting the lost. That is what it means. Uh, That is the means by which we have been saved. It was through conflict. And now as God's followers, we have been given a greater purpose than just hiding within our Christian circles until Jesus comes back. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, we have been called to stand firm in the faith, not run away from it. So crawling back inside the shell and playing it safe is just not a viable option for any of us. Instead, we must become people who... Lean into conflict. So that's the title of my message tonight. We have to be people who lean into conflict. In other words, when hard conversations come up with non-believers, we need to be the kinds of people who step towards those conversations and don't back away from them. And to do that effectively, what we need is a perfect example to follow. We need a north star to guide us. We need something that can be a target that we're aiming at. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ offers to us in the Gospel of John. So would you please turn with me in God's Word to John chapter 8. We're headed back to the Gospel of John. We're continuing in our series, and tonight we're actually going to be Wrapping up the 8th chapter. So we're specifically going to be in verses 48 
through 59 this evening. But before we dive in, it's important that you all understand the context of this passage. Up to this point in John chapter 8, Jesus has been in the middle of a long theological argument with the Pharisees at the Feast of Tabernacles. And this argument starts at the beginning of the chapter with Jesus claiming to be the light of the world. That's his big statement. He claims to be the light of the world. And the result of this claim, you see in verse 30, is that many people, it says, come to believe in him. So at the beginning, it seems like everything's kind of going well for Jesus. But that all changes when he makes his second claim. In verse 32, Jesus claims that the truth will set you free from sin if you believe in him. Did you catch that? His claim is that you will be set free by truth if you believe in him. When he says that, it's where the debate really starts to kick off. Because the Jews did not believe that they needed to be set free from anything. They wrongly assumed that their nationality and their heritage as sons of Abraham would guarantee them a spot as sons of God. So they didn't think that there was anything that needed to be changed. They thought they were free from sin, that God wouldn't hold it against them. But obviously that was wrong. And so Jesus just calls them out on this theological error, and he exposes this fact that in reality, their spiritual father is not Abraham. It's certainly not God, but rather their father is the devil. So nice words from Jesus. And he calls them out and he exposes them. And it's at that moment, as the Pharisees get called out and they lose the theological battle, that our passage starts. So we're jumping into the middle of a pretty tense uh, conversation here. And so as we dive in, why don't you all look with me at verse 48. It says that in response to the claims that Jesus had made, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. You know, if there was ever a person who was truly intimate with conflict, wouldn't you agree that it was Jesus? Almost immediately in this passage, the Jews kind of result, uh, resort to using insults and mockery, and they even escalate the situation to the point of violence by the end of it. All because they could not argue against the truth that Jesus spoke. That's really the key here, is that when they lose the argument, then they fall into emotionalism and then further into violence. And what's so incredible to me about this passage is that even in the face of this hostility, Jesus doesn't shy away from them. Certainly he leaves when they try to kill him, but before that happens, all Jesus does in this conflict is lean in. And I believe that in doing so, he has given us a model to follow in our own lives when hard conversations come up with non-believers that we might be interacting with. So looking to that example, the one that Christ has given us, there are three points I want to draw out that will help us as we start to learn what it means to lean into conflict with a world that is hostile to our God and to the gospel. And so if you're taking notes, the first point I have... Oh, never mind, I'm not jumping to my first point. <laughs> what I'll add to that intro is that I hope you see... Um, Oh, excuse me, my notes are out of order. Okay, we are coming to the first point. The first point I have is this. Sorry for that. We have to suffer insults with composure. So if you are going to be someone who leans into, cold, uh, into conflict, what you find in this passage is that we must suffer insults with composure. You know, one of the things that I did find interesting uh, while I was studying this passage is that it contains three parallel sections. Really, you can break this text up into three chunks. And if you exclude the last one, they all follow the exact same pattern. The Jews insult Jesus. Jesus responds with the truth. And then he ends by offering them grace. Every time until the end, that's the pattern. And I mention that because my points are taken directly from the pattern of the text rather than the progression of the text. And so we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And when it comes to suffering insults with composure, with self-control, I take that point from verses 48, 52, and 57. You don't have to look at them, but each contain the insults of the Pharisees. And what they reveal is that Jesus did not stoop to the level of his enemies in conflict. Rather, he stayed self-controlled even when they didn't. If you look at verse 48, again, it says that the Jews answered him and said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon and in fact, they're saying, Jesus, you think you're the light of the world? You think that we need your truth to be set free 
You're crazy. You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. That's essentially the answer that they give to him. And in doing so, they're resorting to a logical fallacy called ad hominem. I had to look this up. Grammar's not really my thing, but an ad hominem. And if you like logic or debate, it's where you attack the person rather than their argument. So that's what the Pharisees have to resort to. It's the best thing they can come up with. They're like angry little children just calling out names because they are not getting what they want from him. And they did it as a way to discredit Jesus and the truth that he was proclaiming. And as they do that, notice the first thing that they call him You would think it would be the demon, you know, start with that. But they go with Samaritan. They call him a Samaritan. And while that might seem somewhat innocent to you at first glance, the truth is, it isn't in the slightest. In that day, Samaritan was used as a racial slur. And it referenced anything and everything that was vile or despicable. The reason for this is because it referred to the northern kingdom of Israel, which, when it was taken into captivity, did not remain pure, but decided to intermingle with all the Gentile nations. And the southern tribes of Israel, specifically Judah, viewed their northern brothers now as half-breeds. And so when they called someone a Samaritan, they were saying, in effect, that you are a pretender who has no claim No claim to the promises of God. And when you take that understanding to the text, one of the commentaries I read made this connection. That with this term, Samaritan, the Pharisees could have also been referring to the rumor that Jesus had been born out of wedlock from a Roman soldier. And so, in effect, they're saying, you Samaritan, you half-breed to him. And it was an attempt to insult him and to really put a piercing indictment against him. Right? They're attacking his identity with the aim of causing a painful wound. And that's only heightened by their follow-up, where then they charge him with being a demon. <laughs> You're demon-possessed, too. Samaritan's not good enough. And that's just outright blasphemy against God. The point is that the Pharisees were losing the argument. And they wanted to change the focus, so they tried starting a smear campaign against Jesus. And what I want you all to do now is just think with me for a moment about how stupid that is. In a smear campaign, what are you doing? You're trying to, you know, expose everything that's wrong with someone else. And if anyone's going to win that game, it's Jesus. He's God. He knows it all. He's the one who knows your sin. He knows all the you know, horrible things you've done, the embarrassing things you've done. He's got all the ammo in the whole world. So if it really ever came to the point where he took the gloves off and went blow to blow with the Pharisees, he would have eviscerated them. There's no way they could have gone to blows with him. But he chooses not to, doesn't he? In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
And while that verse primarily speaks to the way Christ acted at his crucifixion, I think it also serves as a picture of how he responds to the insults of these Pharisees. He chose not to answer the fool in his folly. Got to find my notes again. There we are. When I was thinking about this, this point, the illustration that came into my mind, uh, one from our history that I think we would understand, is the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Hey, Cameron, would you mind picking that up for me? I'll try and go without it. Sure. Yeah, thank you. The reason why I uh, thought about that one is because during those years, when you think about Martin Luther and Rosa Parks and all the different kind of activism, uh, you know, events that were taking place during that time, none of it would have succeeded if it was not for their use of peaceful, peaceful protests. Those leaders learned how to suffer insults with composure and that in turn is what allowed them to change the whole world. So don't miss this. Some of you here, a lot of us here, tend towards running away from conflict. And if that's true, then you need to work on exercising that muscle. But there are others of you here who have the opposite problem. You've been keeping ammo in your pockets when it comes to interacting with people who are non-believers, so to speak. You know the ways they've messed up and the different insecurities that they have and you stand at the ready to take them out as soon as the conversation gets heated. And if that's you and you really want to be effective in confrontation and learning how to lean into conflict, then you have to let that go. And you have to learn how to take some hits without dishing them back. Why? Because that is where our king set the bar. And to go below that is nothing short of arrogant hypocrisy. Just think about your own life for a second. Before Christ, were you any better than those people in your life? Were you any less sinful? I wasn't. So praise God that Jesus does not stoop to the level of sinful people like us during conflict, or else we would not have the cross. We'd all be obliterated in an instant, being judged forever, and God would be totally righteous in doing it. But He doesn't. Instead, He is perfectly self-controlled in the face of our hostility. So that now as His ambassadors as the ones who are carrying his message to a sinful and broken world, we can go and do the same. That's why we have to be willing to suffer insult and maintain our composure as we do when we lean into those moments of conflict, especially with the people who are close to us. This leads me to the second point which is that we must speak truth with conviction. If my first point is that you have to suffer insult with composure, 
then it only follows in the second that you must speak the truth with conviction. I hope this is obvious, but while keeping your composure in conflict means you don't run away and you also don't lash out, at the same time, it doesn't mean that you should just stand there and take the punishment all day. Not at all. Leaning into conflict means that you have to speak up at some point, and you have to say something, which is exactly what Christ does in this passage. Look back at verse 49. Jesus suffers the lies and insults of the Pharisees only to respond by saying, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I'll stop there. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, Look, you Pharisees say that all of my claims and my behaviors come from a heart of pride and from demons. But that can't be true since I obey my Father, and he is the one who honors me. Jesus is boldly speaking the truth to them. And later on, in verse 54, he does the same thing again. Look at it. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. I hope you see it's the same message in both of those sections. Jesus does not try to sugarcoat it. He does not try to appease the Pharisees or woo them back to this message with a nice conversation. Instead, he simply calls it how it is and he destroys their attempts to discredit him by speaking truth, which is exactly what we have to do as believers today. I think of what Paul wrote to the church in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to this. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Therefore, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Friends, if you have given your life to Christ, then according to the Apostle Paul, it is your divinely appointed responsibility to wage war against the arguments and falsehoods that are raised against our God. That is your responsibility, to wage war, it says. Not with weapons, but with truth. And the reality is that you can only do that by knowing the truth. That's the only thing that's going to help you to speak it with conviction. Truths and lies are like water and oil. No matter how hard you try, you can't mix them. You can't make a falsehood true, and you cannot make truths a falsehood. So the most effective thing to do when you're confronting lies will always be speaking truth. And that might sound simple. It is, but it works every time. 
you know, I, I almost laughed as I studied this because this is why Matt Walsh is so famous today. If any of you follow him, he figured this concept out and he made millions of dollars, millions of dollars on a documentary that sole purpose is to answer a question that one of the four-year-olds in our church could answer. It's truth. It's not rocket science. When you speak truth, it dismantles false arguments and false, you know, assertions, no matter how complex they seem. But again, to do this effectively as believers, you have to actually know what the truth is. I can't stress this enough. It is so necessary at this stage of your life, this stage of my life, and really every stage of life to be deepening your understanding of this book right here. If we're going to follow Christ's example when it comes to conflict, then what we really need is something that J.I. Packer calls a renaissance of Christian intellectualism. In his book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, Packer offers this idea of a renaissance intellectually as the remedy for religious liberalism in the church. And I love what he has to say about it. In the second chapter, he says that liberal thinking, and that's liberal in the theological sense, not the political, he says liberal thinking is really superficial, and it can be shown to be so. Thus, the true remedy against liberalism is for men to think more, not less. We are to think more deeply, more vigorously, more clearly, and more critically. Isn't that good? That's what a renaissance of Christian intellectualism would look like for Redeemer 20s. It would be men and women who do not think less about the truths of God, but who think more about the truths of God. And the reality is that all of us are called to pursue that kind of understanding. As the Apostle Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense of your faith to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What I take away from that verse is that it doesn't matter if you're not an academic. It doesn't matter if you weren't great at school. None of those serve as a valid excuse to not be learning more about God and His Word. So don't settle for less in your knowledge of God. If I could just even draw anything in your hearts tonight, that would be the main one. Don't settle for less with God. Practically speaking, then, you need to cut out the things in your life that drain you of your ability to think about God. Things like social media, television, YouTube, and even music, while all being good when used in moderation, can easily dull your mind and your ability to understand God when you recklessly consume them. So set those healthy disciplines in your life now. 
Don't wait on those. Likewise, as you kind of cut those things out of your life, you've got to replace it with something. And so you need to cultivate a greater hunger for the truth. And to do that, I have two applications for you. The first one is that all of you need to write out a summer reading list for Christian leader, uh, literature. And what I mean by that is you need to get out a piece of paper or you need to pull out your phone tonight and you need to start listing out the books that you're going to read this summer. All of them. And if you don't know what would be a good Christian book or a good Christian literature to dive into, then find your small group leader and ask them. Or come find me after the message and ask me. But you need to have books that you are reading that teach you more about God and about yourself and about this world. Always. As believers, we should always be doing that. So develop that habit. Develop that discipline of reading books. Don't neglect it. That's my first application. And here's the second one. You, as a believer, need to be at every preaching event that you have the chance to attend. When sermons are being written and prepared, it is for the sole purpose of increasing your knowledge of the truth. So when Pastor JT, Pastor John, Pastor Matt, or Luke, whoever it may be, whenever they're getting ready for the sermon, that's why they're doing it. It's because they want to help you with your understanding of who God is. But they can't do that if you're not there or if you're zoned out during the message. Don't miss out and don't schedule other plans when you know there's going to be gospel preaching on a night. You've got to show up for those. Sundays should be a given, but you should be fighting to get to the other ones too. And guys, for you, again, here's the application. Sign up for Faith Fight Feast. They're excited. Come on. It's like JT and all of them, they're putting this together for the young men of this church to know something about the God that they serve. And so even if you have to move pieces around, I would just encourage you, don't miss that. If you can, sign up. Sign up and be there and come hear what God is going to say through the preaching of His Word. And ladies, make sure you're doing the same. Whenever there's women's events here at this church, whenever 20s women's events are going on, don't miss those. Don't skip them because you have something else to do. Make those a priority so that you can learn more about the truth in God's Word. That is what's going to help you speak truth with conviction in those hard moments of conflict. It'll be all the work that you've done beforehand, so don't neglect it. That brings me to the last point, which is that we must share grace with compassion. If the first is that we must suffer insults, and the second is that we have to speak truth, then the third follows that we must share grace with compassion in conflict. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That verse should serve as a sober reminder that when we go into moments of conflict, 
and we speak truth, our knowledge will only puff us up and our best words will only be the sound of a clanging cymbal if they are not marked by a heart truly filled with love, truly filled with compassion. So of all the points, I think this one is key. And it's one that can be easily lost, especially when the world's so hostile. I think we all know that feeling. It's like somebody raises the bar and they escalate the conversation and the natural reaction is fight or flight. So it's either I step away or I raise the bar with them. But when you come to the Christian faith, that is not a valid response. Again, what you are supposed to do is to stay right there. You're not stepping away, but you're also not escalating it. And you're doing that so that you can share the love of God with them in that moment, regardless of how hard it is. When you come back to the text, there are three times where Jesus does this. There's three times where Jesus shares grace with his enemies, even though they are hostile towards him. The first one is in verse 51. After speaking the truth, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's a gospel offer right there. The reaction the Pharisees should have had is, Whoa, what do you mean we won't experience death? They should have been curious. And if they had been, that could have led to eternal life for them in that moment. Right? It's Jesus extending the opportunity of salvation to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, that's the first one. The second time he offers grace is in verse 56. They bring up Abraham and talk about him as their father. Jesus says that <laughs> your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He kind of throws it back at them. And again, this is an offer of the gospel. Why? Because it's revealing to them who Jesus is. When he's talking about Abraham rejoicing, there are several different views as to what that could possibly mean, that Abraham rejoiced. Did somehow Abraham see into the future? Maybe. The most widely affirmed uh, position was that Abraham rejoiced in the day of Christ when the Lord provided a sacrifice for his son when they went to the top of the mountain and he was about to sacrifice him. As the ram was provided and Abraham was saved from having to kill his own son, in that moment he saw a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus. And so they would say that Jesus saying this to them is a reminder. It's trying to point the Pharisees back to that moment and help them understand that's why Jesus had come in the first place, was to sacrifice his life for them. That's the second time he offers grace. And the last time is in verse 58. The Jews hear Jesus say that Abraham rejoiced and they crudely interpret that. <laughs> they say, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says again, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And what you have there when Jesus says, I am, is the strongest declaration of his deity throughout the entire Gospel of John. Because there's only one other person who ever gets to say, I am. 
That's God. So Jesus stands there. And again, they have been hostile. They have called him demon-possessed. They have accused him of being a Samaritan. And yet again, he tries to show them the truth. He offers them grace. He says, I am. Put your trust in me. I am. And so three times he offers them the gospel. And each of these attempts were driven by Christ's overwhelming compassion. And they served as opportunities for the Pharisees to repent every single time. And amazingly, Jesus, he just keeps offering them. Again, it's a pattern. It doesn't matter how many times they insult him. He keeps giving them the gospel until he is forced to leave by the threat of violence. I think there's something we can learn from that. But when you get to the end, in verse 59, it says that when the Jews heard Jesus say this, they did not (laughs) accept the invitation. Instead, they picked up stones to kill him. And we're not really told how Jesus did this, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. You know, I always want to see these moments in the Bible (laughs) where it says, you know, Jesus walked through the crowd in Luke chapter 4 or here where it says Jesus hid himself. We're not really told how he did it, whether it was like he blinded them or, you know, he turned into Frodo, put the ring on and just goes through. We're not given that explanation. All we're told is that he hid himself. And the reason why is because it wasn't his time yet, was it? There was a day coming soon where Jesus would die. Where he would suffer to the point of death because of our world's hostility. But that day would come later on Calvary's Hill. And then, and only then, according to the will of his Father, was Jesus going to lay down his life. And that's what these Pharisees didn't really understand is that even as Jesus stepped into conflict the whole time, offering them the gospel, they kept rejecting it. And the reality is for us, if you are going to be someone who actively leans into conflict, if you are going to share the gospel in a way that Jesus did, the reality is that people are going to reject you a lot. You know, we, we kind of take one step towards evangelism. We take one step towards conflict. We have a coworker, and we're like, okay, I'm going to mention church in passing. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't come tonight because I have a 20s ministry. And whoo, okay, there's my evangelism for the week. And we do that, and I, I'm making light of it, but a lot of the times when we do, it gets rejected. A lot of the times, even when you verbally say or share the gospel and confront somebody, it gets rejected. And we get so discouraged so easily, thinking, oh, okay, that one time, we're done. Jesus goes three times and would have gone even further if it wasn't for the threat of death. And I don't say that to put a burden on you, but to say, Christ did that not just for them, but for you. Jesus laid down his life. He repeatedly faced the hostility in your own heart so that one day you could be saved. And as you rest in that truth as a believer, knowing that Christ 
laid down his life, that he again and again and again called you to himself, it should push you in your evangelism, in your ability to lean into conflict and to say, you know what, maybe I'm going to give it another try. Maybe, you know, that coworker who blew up on me last time, this time I'm going to go for it again. Maybe it's a family member. And you know you've had, it seems like, unending conversations about the gospel or even conflict just circling around the issue, and you're so tired of it. Remember what Christ has done and go again. That's what God has called us to as believers. And really, the joy is in that we get to invite people into the greatest relationship that they could ever know. This last weekend, uh, I got to celebrate a pretty awesome event as one of my best friends got married. Ben and Abby got married on Friday, and that wedding was about everything you could hope for. I did not cry. <laughs> ben did. <laughs> and it did almost get me. He wept when Abby walked down the aisle. But if you know anything about those two, then you know that they reflect a life of joy that is given to pursuing Jesus Christ. And that bled into the entire thing. And when I was at the reception, we all, you know, sat at the long table. I got to be in the wedding. So we're all sitting at the table of the bride and the groom. And as I sat there, I just took a moment to stop. And I watched as all these people are smiling and there's joy and there's food being shared and all the attention being on the bride and on the groom, but really on the bride. And as I sat there, all I could think is, what a picture of what we're going to someday. When Jesus comes back, there is going to be a wedding feast unlike anything we have ever seen. And there is going to be joy. There is going to be food. There is going to be unending happiness. And the focus is going to be on the bride and the groom. So when it comes to leaning into conflict, that is the message that we are taking to the world. And if you are here tonight and you do not know Jesus, that is what you are invited into right now. The Bible is so clear. For those who repent of their sins, that means you turn away. You turn away from them. But not just away from them, but to something else. You repent and believe in Jesus. If you do that, then you will be saved. And you will find yourself someday sitting in the banquet hall at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is worth leaning into conflict for. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have stepped into conflict for us. Though we were lost, though we are not easy people to love, thank you that you took the first step towards us. God, is just meditate on that. I pray that Lord, we would have similar hearts when it comes to the lost people in our own lives. And that, God, we would remember the hope that we have. And as we remember it, we would be filled with a desire to proclaim the good news 
to the people who are in this world. God, we're weak. We want to run away from conflict. We don't want to step into it. We mess it up all the time. And we need your grace. And so I pray that as we walk away, even from tonight, we would be encouraged to know that even if we've failed, your power is greater than even our worst weakness. And that you can use those moments. Lord, would we be bold in our proclamation of the gospel? Would we be bold as we step into conversations with the people in our lives who don't know you? And would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, anoint us just with peace and with an ability, a power to share the right words in those moments? God, I pray that you would do this, and I pray that you would do it all for the sake of your glory and for the name of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.